0: Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies.
1: This week, Mike is joined by Lisa Curtis, Senior Fellow and Director for the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. They discuss the state of the U.S.-India relationship.
0: Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard, I'm Mike Green. My colleague on this podcast, Jude Blanchett, is coming back next time, still on paternity leave, and hope you're enjoying it, Jude, and thinking great thoughts about Asian geostrategy between diapers. We're joined today by one of the leading thinkers on the region in Washington, Lisa Curtis. Lisa is currently the director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for New America Security, CNAS, but she's had careers in other think tanks and government and the White House on the NSC staff. We're gonna talk about India, her core area of, of expertise and interest, but also more broadly, geopolitics in South Asia and Indo-Pacific more broadly. So Lisa, welcome. We always start with the how did you get here part. And I find a lot of India wallas often have an unusually complicated story <laughs> turning this way and that way because there's just not the same historically pipeline for expertise that you get with Japan, Korea, China. So I'm sure it's interesting, but get us started. How did you get into the National Security India business?
1: Well, believe it or not, I started at the CIA in the student co-op program when I was still in college. So I was doing summer internships at the CIA. And I started out on the Middle East, focusing on Iran issues. But when I went full-time to the CIA in the early 90s, one of my early projects that I worked on was on India. And you know at the time, India had just opened up. You just had the economic reforms that were being carried out by then finance minister Manmohan Singh, who, of course, later went on to be the prime minister. So it was an exciting time for the Indian economy. And so I think my project was looking at the potential for foreign investment in India and that was in the early nineties. But really when I really got immersed in South Asia was in nineteen ninety-four. My husband and I had our first tour at the US Embassy in Pakistan. And we had sort of chosen Pakistan because it had all of the exciting things that you look for when you're young and wanting to go overseas and have an interesting tour. It had nuclear weapons. It had conflict, the India-Pakistan conflict over Kashmir. You had political instability. So it was a very interesting place from that perspective. And we enjoyed our tour so much in Pakistan that we chose to go to India next to stay in the South Asia region and also had a great tour there, very exciting. And I guess one of the most exciting things that happened in that tour was at the end of the tour in May 1998, India, of course, tested its nuclear weapon, which sent the relationship in an interesting direction, which we can talk about. But anyway, so yeah, most of my career, I have focused on South Asia, India in particular, looking at the strategic partnership And I have to say, it's never been a dull moment, just seeing all the changes in the region, the changes in particular of the relationship between the U.S. and India. I've never found myself to be lacking in interesting work.
0: So a lot of people in answering that first question, say, well, I was an exchange student in Korea, or, well, I really liked Japanese manga anime, and got interested in Japanese culture, kind of got into the national security space from that side. But you jumped right in the deep end of the pool with nuclear weapons, terrorism, sectarian strife, border disputes. What were you doing in college that attracted the interest of the U.S. government? Or did you, did you go looking for that yourself? What were you studying? What sort of made this, when you were still an undergraduate, a possibility for you? Were you a math genius or a language genius? What made this all possible? And where were you studying?
1: Well, I was studying at the time at Indiana University, and I was studying political science. And, well, I had taken one semester of Chinese. I actually took one semester of Chinese, ended up switching to French which, again, doesn't really relate to South Asia in any way. So I think getting into South Asia, it wasn't something that I had been planning in college. Like I said, I'd been focused on Middle East politics in the Middle East. So I think it was really just happenstance. But then once I got a taste of the region, once I went there, lived there, I fell in love with the region, found it extremely interesting. And then here I am 30 years later, and still focused on the region and on the U.S.-India relationship. So, what's your
0: explanation for the India imperative? I mean, India is clearly a critical part of the American strategic playbook right now. It has not always been bipartisan, or even within administrations, hasn't always been easy. The '98 nuclear test a good, good example, right? Clinton wanted to build an India relationship, but the nonproliferation on other parts. Of the U.S. government, the Democratic Party couldn't stomach that. Even in the Bush administration, when I was senior director, it was compelling strategically, but it was a hard sell. You had to manage this as a official in the NSC during the Trump years. What's the case for India in American foreign policy strategy?
1: Well, I think the case goes all the way back to the mid 90s. Most people talk about the shift in the U.S.-India relationship, they'll go back to the year 2000 when former President Clinton made his famous visit to India. I would go back even further. I would go back to Ambassador Wisner, Ambassador Frank Wisner. When he was ambassador in India, he really could see the future, he could see the rise of China, He knew that there were major differences between India and China in terms of India being a democracy, China being an authoritarian regime. He knew the economic potential of India. And so he could really see, going back 25, 30 years almost, that India was going to be an important partner for the United States to be able to manage effectively a rising China. And I would say it's the same now, and the rationale is even greater for the US India partnership. It's still based on convergences between our two countries on the dangers of a rising China and how we have to deal with that. And also, you know, we still have shared principles and values when it comes to democracy. We both have very raucous democracies that actually sometimes can get in the way of bringing our two nations closer. But still, I think our fundamental appreciation for democratic systems, open systems, transparent systems of governance really draws our two nations together. But I do think it's that idea, and I think it was Condi Rice who used to talk about the importance of India to the United States in making sure that the region favors a bounce towards freedom, a bounce of power that favors freedom. I think that was the phrase she used to use. And I think that has underpinned the relationship through all of these years, and each president that has come into power has kind of looked at Asia, looked at the Indo-Pacific, and sees India as this rising economy, this democracy, this major country that stands in stark contrast to China and says, that's an important relationship. We need to keep building that. And that's why we have seen this bipartisan support For building and growing the U.S.-India partnership. We've had some hurdles here and there. It hasn't been perfect smooth sailing. But by and large, I think the trajectory has been set now for at least 20 years. And the trend is toward continuing to build that partnership, find those convergences, and now i would say that it's really focused on helping india build up its own capabilities its own defense security capabilities the united states wants an india that can defend itself particularly on that volatile border with china that can assert its naval power in the indian ocean region remain the dominant power in that region be able to stand up to chinese encroachment there in the maritime space So I think the rationale has remained the same and maybe even grown stronger over the last 20 years. And I don't really see that changing. I think when I served in the Trump administration, one of the defining moments was the 2020 India-China border crisis, where the U.S. showed itself to be a reliable partner. We provided India with increased intelligence, information, military gear, The United States really stood behind India when it faced that crisis with China. And the Biden administration has definitely continued the trajectory. And I don't see that changing.
0: Is it equally true on the Indian side? I was at the U.S.-India dialogue that Ananta runs a few weeks ago, and it was a good discussion. As I was saying before the podcast, the air in Delhi was not pleasant, (laughs) but it was a really good discussion But the thing that really stuck with me was the U.S. delegation was invited to watch the retreat. You know, it was a few days after the Republic Day Parade, and they have a dawn, excuse me, a dusk tattoo of all the military bands, the pipe bands, camels, you've probably been to it, lancers, very cool. They sat the U.S. delegation, which was almost entirely former officials, in the front row and in front of all the other ambassadors and high commissioners. (laughs) And somebody from Ministry of External Affairs told me, yeah, we did that. The U.S. is, from that anecdote, it's just so huge in India's foreign policy right now. Do you think that the Indian side mirrors the way Americans have come to think about India as a way to maintain a balance of power that favors freedom? How do the Indians look at the U.S. car? Is it about getting technology? Is it about getting capabilities? Is it about alignment? How do you think the Indian view of us is in this convergence?
1: Well, yeah, I think that the relationship with the United States has grown in importance to India over the years, it's the same thing. They see the economic opportunities, whether it's in the IT sector and Indian workers coming to the United States, the transfer of technology. India is very interested in growing its technological prowess, and it sees the United States as really the most important country to be able to cooperate with on that front. And the China factor looms large. And as I explained, the 2020 border crisis really drove that home, I think, for Indian strategists, sort of recognizing how important it was to keep that relationship with the United States close. And we even saw India becoming more receptive to quad cooperation after that crisis. So I think India does see the United States as helping to bounce China's power but it's a little bit more nuanced for India. Because India shares a border with China, they also want to be careful not to provoke China too much. So I think for a long time, India was interested in staying equidistant from China and the United States and and trying to keep a balance there and try to have good economic relations with China in particular. But Again, that 2020 border crisis, I think that was a real watershed moment for India and really decided that trying to be nice or be equidistant between China and the United States is not really working. It's not really making China see India differently. And so I think they've, they've backed away from that approach. Yeah, so I think it's economics for India. It's China. It's about Indian power. I think India knows that it's going to be more powerful on the global stage if it's associated or close with the United States.
0: Yeah, I think the engine behind the U.S.-India relationship over multiple BGP and Congress governments, Republican, Democratic governments, both sides, the engine really is China, of course, creates geopolitical uncertainty, but a recognition in the U.S. that a strong India is in U.S. interests, full stop. Like, we need India to be successful. And an Indian recognition, which didn't come naturally, that the uh, Nuruvian socialism and non alignment and all that stuff, notwithstanding, US leadership actually matters to India and to India's success. And then when you get to those two basic recognitions, that's more than enough to drive it forward. But then you, we'll get into the problems because there's no shortage of problems. Did you see our friend Ashley tell us his piece in Foreign Affairs, The Bad Bed on India? Now, I've written in Foreign Affairs. You have. The little secret is the editors of Foreign Affairs force their title on you. You have to fight and fight because most of us, especially if we've been in government, want to be a little subtle, a little nuanced. And the foreign affairs editors is like, no, we want people to read this. <laughs> so they don't give you a hard time on the content, but the title is always a big fight, right? And I have to admit, the last big piece I did for them was about US allies in Asia, and they pushed me to call it the real Asia hands. And I'm glad they did, because it kind of made the point in a not subtle way. So... Who knows if Ash came up with that, but it seemed to me he was basically saying, look, on a Taiwan contingency, don't expect India to act the way Japan or Australia would, which sounds right to me. But what is a good bet on India? What, As the world gets more dangerous, what is it we should expect from India if this all goes well? Is it that India can sanitize the Indian Ocean, keep the Chinese busy on the border, or is it that actually India's with us in the UN, with us in international – what does success look like in this relationship, if not Ash's threshold –
1: Yeah. So, Mike, I couldn't agree with you more on the titles of foreign affairs pieces. I had the same experience. You're lucky you got to fight with them. They didn't even let me fight. They just slapped a title on without clearing it with me. And frankly, it it was not a title I would have chosen.
0: So I have to ask now, which title was that?
1: So this was a piece I wrote in May of 2022. And I cannot remember the title, but yeah, if you look it up and if you read the piece you will see that my argument does not support what the title says. So it's always good to read the full piece, not just the title, especially if it's foreign affairs. But yeah, Ashley's piece, look, I've discussed this with him, and I'll just say I believe that India is a good bet for the United States. I really and truly believe that. And I think Ashley a few years ago wrote a piece that said India is a good bet. And so I probably associate with that analysis that he had a few years ago, which was basically, look, it benefits the United States if India can stand up to China, if India has the capabilities to project its power throughout the Indo-Pacific. That is in the United States' interest. India shares our values, principles, desire for a peaceful, stable Indo-Pacific. And so therefore, India's growth is good for the United States, or India improving its capabilities, defense capabilities, being more active on the international stage, that all benefits the United States. And I believe that, and I agree with that. But I think Ashley's piece, what he was trying to say, and it may have been more directed at a U.S. audience, I think it was saying, have reasonable expectations when it comes to the role that India would likely play if there was a contingency in the Taiwan Strait or the South China Sea. India would not send warships. It would not become deeply militarily involved in such a contingency. The United States would not be able to count on India like it would Australia or Japan or the Philippines or Korea, our alliance partners. And that I agree with. So it's more a call to U.S. officials to lower their expectations of India when it comes to what India might do during a contingency with China, between the U.S. and China, that India would probably look out for India's interests, do what it had to do to protect its own border, and probably try to avoid provoking China in any significant way. So I think on that point, I agree with Ashley. But even so, I still think India is a good bet even if we can't count on Indian warships during a Taiwan contingency, it's still in the U.S. interest to build up the relationship, ensure India has the capabilities to meet the threats in its region, particularly from China, and to be able to burden share. Because India is burden sharing when it comes to helping the Southeast Asian nations. Look, it's providing Ramos missiles to the Philippines. It's working with Vietnam. We're now working together on helping Southeast Asian nations improve their maritime domain awareness through the Quad Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative. So India is an important partner. And this is very simple, but without India, there's no Quad. And the Quad is extremely important. If you look at four powerful democracies with strong navies, Geostrategically located throughout the Indo-Pacific region. And if you don't have India as part of that grouping, you're really missing a key part of this networked security architecture that the U.S. is trying to build. So for those reasons, I think India is a good bet. Even though I agree with the bottom line analysis of Ashley's piece, I would not agree with the title.
0: Yeah, maybe he doesn't. Who knows? But I think the Taiwan debate, which is intense for good reasons, sometimes drives analysts or policymakers to ask the question, what would you send? What frigates, what F-35s, what submarines, how would you help us fight? It's the wrong question. The question should be, what role will you play? And if India can sanitize the Indian Ocean, which is frankly critical for the transit of the Fifth Fleet, critical in terms of China's very obvious strategy to have horizontal escalation in other theaters to pull the U.S. away, then that's a pretty bloody important role. <laughs> and we sometimes ask the wrong question. I have mentioned on this podcast and in my my book, By More Than Providence, a National Security Council document in the Reagan years, which stated that the rise of India is in U.S. interests regardless of whether or not India is aligned with us. It was a real insight. But there was a lot of skepticism. And my simple version of this is people who came to this policy from a maritime strategy perspective, particularly if you would worked on Japan, like I did, or perhaps NATO, like Nick Burns and Bob Blackwell did in the Bush administration, you looked at India as a real opportunity. But if you came at it as something of a continentalist focused on securing a stable relationship with China, like Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft and others, you saw India as a messy liability waste of time. And I think that debate is largely over at least in terms of government policy. And you were in charge of India and South Asia in the Trump years, and you'd worked, of course, before that at Heritage on all these issues and interacted with the Obama and Bush administration officials. Without going into all the dirty laundry, that's for another podcast, and I'm sure there are tales to tell, with H.R. McMasters, Matt Pottinger and others. How hard was it to sell what you're telling me right now? Did it come pretty naturally in the administration?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think Prime Minister Modi visited the White House in June of 2017, one of the first visitors to the White House. And that was really important. That really solidified, I think, Prime Minister Modi's relationship with President Trump. It was a great visit and it sort of set the tone for the relationship moving forward. And General McMaster, when he was National Security Advisor, very supportive of the U.S.-India relationship, he was the one who was Behind the lifting of the restrictions on India to be able to access unmanned aerial systems, being the first non-NATO partner of the United States to be able to access that technology, General McMaster was behind that. Also, elevating India to strategic trade authorization status, one, so that India would have access to dual-use technologies also happened early In the Trump administration, there were a lot of strategic moves. And also Secretary Mattis, the defense secretary, also had a big role in moving the U.S.-India relationship forward on a strategic basis early on in the Trump administration. Of course, there were the trade issues that became a sticking point. And that was a, a difficult issue, the trade issue. But frankly, the trade issue was difficult with all countries, for Even the Australians
0: Trump. and the Japanese and Canadians. So.
1: Exactly. Equal so,
0: opportunity, annoying issue.
1: Exactly, exactly. But other than the trade issues, I would say there was really enormous progress in the U.S.-India relationship. And there was a very good rapport, let's say, between Prime Minister Modi and President Trump There were frequent phone calls. There were meetings whenever there was an opportunity to do so. That was very important. And, you know, Japan also plays a critical role here. And I remember the first trilateral meeting. And I know, Mike, you were the early mover on trying to create a trilateral relationship between the U.S., India, Japan, doing yeoman's work on that. And got to see that start happening in the Trump administration when you had, you know, the first sit-down meeting. There was like a photo op, I think it was in late 2018, where the three met at the G20 summit in December of 2018. But then it was seven, eight months later in Osaka in Japan at the G20 in Osaka, Japan in 2019, where the three sat down and had a meeting together. And that was very significant. So yeah, a lot a lot of good things happened on the U.S.-India relationship during the Trump administration. I think there was just one bad meeting, let's say, and that was in Manila, actually, in November 2017 on the fringes of the ASEAN meeting. And it was because the meeting ran late. I think President Trump, they all were late getting out of the ASEAN meeting. And it was like five or six in the evening. And President Trump was very tired, very grouchy. So that meeting didn't go so well. But other than that, I can say I I was in all the meetings between the two leaders. They got along very well. And there was very strong rapport. And that only increased during the 2020 border crisis. And then even during COVID, throughout those early days of COVID, there was a lot of interaction between President Trump, Prime Minister Modi, a lot of cooperation. And then, of course, President Trump visited India in February 2020, right before COVID broke out. And that was a historic meeting as well.
0: I'm sure you have similar experiences. A lot of us do. But when I have meetings in Singapore or Tokyo or Seoul or Canberra, it's not long when you talk to senior officials or academics. It's not long before you get the Trump to question, what would a second Trump administration mean? And real anxiety let's be candid, real anxiety. In Europe, it's off the charts, it's apoplectic. (laughs) Anxiety doesn't even describe it. I have to say, the week I spent in Delhi, it almost never came up. I think the Indians feel pretty confident that whoever's in office, a relationship they can manage. You know, they're not a treaty ally, so in some ways they haven't taken their mortgage (laughs) on national security and bet on the U.S. in the same way as a treaty ally in NATO or Japan or Korea or Australia. But it it was a different experience as well for Modi. To some extent, the Japanese, because of Abe's pretty successful management of the relationship in those years. The trilateral thing, thank you for the shout out. By way of context, for listeners, I left the NSC in 2006. And actually, Shankar, who's currently the future of external affairs in India, asked me if I would, at CSIS, pull together a 1.5-track trilateral to pull India and Japan closer together. It was important because for the nuclear deal, Japan's vote in the nuclear suppliers group was critical. But just strategically, the Japanese and Indians were not connecting the way that it seemed they should. It was a fascinating series of 1.5-track meetings that eventually became a regular, including by the time you were in office, a regular trilateral process among governments. And the Japan-India relationship, if U.S.-India has a bipartisan kind of trajectory, Japan-India does even more so. It's been pretty impressive. Let me ask, okay, we got to get to the problems because this relationship has no shortage of them. I remember senior Chinese official telling some of us in 2005, that the U.S.-India relationship would continue to converge. There was nothing China could do to stop that. But this official said, but it's India, so you will be very frustrated. (laughs) So it has converged, but we've also been frustrated. I'm sure the Indians have. So one of the biggest problems, of course, right now are the reports and the Justice Department investigation into the murder-for-hire assassination attempts against Sikh Americans who are seen in Delhi as enemies of the state The deputy national security advisor, Josh Feiner, went to Delhi. The defense cooperation, everything's continuing, the U.S.-India dialogue. But that's a pretty unsettling and jarring development. How do you view it? Is it terminal? Will we manage it? Will it suck the wind out of the relationship? The India response has not been as belligerent and self-defensive as we might have seen. Delhi seems to understand how serious this is. But how serious do you think it is?
1: Well, I think the assassination plot itself is extremely serious, and the United States is right to take it very seriously and to have difficult conversations with India to pursue it through legal means. But I think that it's manageable, I think the Biden administration has tried very hard to kind of compartmentalize this issue from the rest of the strategic relationship. They've really gone out of their way, bent over backwards to keep the relationship on track. But at the same time, it's quite clear they're taking it seriously, sending all these senior officials, even the CIA director going. And there is an expectation that India will fully investigate the case will follow through with any charges or prosecutions as necessary. And so there does need to be accountability. And so long as India takes this seriously and that there is an accountability piece, then I think our relationship can weather it. But we are in election years in both countries, which could skew things. And since this is a legal matter, the Department of Justice will follow where the law leads and where the investigations lead. And this will be public. So we never know when new information might come out or announced. And we don't know how that will play for the Indian public and also for the U.S. Congress. I think the U.S. Congress has been relatively quiet on this. There are some members, particularly those that have Sikhs in their constituencies, that are speaking out. But by and large, I think most congressional members, they recognize the seriousness of this, but they also recognize how strategically important India is for the United States. And so I think that has insulated to some degree the partnership. But this was a challenge. This was a major challenge. I would say this is the most significant challenge to the U.S.-India relationship in almost a decade since the Deviani-Cobrigade affair, which was in December 2013. So yeah, just about a decade ago. I would put this as a real challenge. But so far, I think both countries are handling it maturely and appropriately and largely trying to keep the media away or at bay, which is the right approach. But it hasn't fully played out.
0: You and I don't know the full extent of the story, but you know, and and I know a bit, the research analysis wing, the raw, the intel community. Hard for me to picture rogue operations. If it were the ISID in Pakistan, it'd be easier to make the case it was a rogue operation. With the Indian Intelligence Service, it's a harder case to make. One would hope that out of this, Delhi would reassess how it thinks about the RAW's operations in the U.S., in particular, but in other democratic countries, because it was incredibly stupid in terms of India's national interest. And one would hope out of this that there's a resolution that involves some accountability of some kind. But the most important thing I suspect for the U.S. government is a new page. When we're moving this close, your intelligence services, regardless of how much we find out about their involvement cannot be doing this kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I think we also need to ask, how did this happen? Because this was very bold. And again, we don't know how high up approval went or how much top levels of government knew, although I agree with you, it's not like RAW a rogue organization. And the civilian leadership does control the security services. So one has to ask, how could the Indian government, if it knew... Assess that this was okay to pursue an assassination plot against a U.S. citizen on U.S. territory. It's extremely bold. So I think maybe this is an opportunity to enhance that dialogue on values and principles. We're trying to work together on sort of a rules based order following norms, international norms. So this maybe provides an opportunity to have more of those discussions. And of course, This issue is largely about some of our differences about freedom of speech or what constitutes violent speech. So I think having some of those conversations is necessary as well, because frankly, I think there's a difference in how some of these Sikh activists are viewed. I think in the United States, what we hear is, well, they haven't been involved in any violent activities and their speech, while maybe we don't like it it's protected speech. Whereas in India, they really do see some of these activists as terrorists and believe they have been involved in provoking violent protests inside India. So there really is a a difference between our two countries on what these Sikh activists are doing.
0: It sounds like you believe, and I believe, the democratic values piece is, although not the same, an important glue in the relationship. And when I was in the White House and we announced Manmohan Singh's visit, I briefed the EU ambassadors and I told them that the world's biggest and oldest democracy and the Greek ambassador took exception to the world's oldest democracy. So I had to say oldest continuous democracy, but I do think the values piece is important. It is stressed though, in terms of not just assassination attempt, but also when Freedom House and other NGOs look at democracy in India, they point to closing civil society space in dutfa and other things. Now, India's democracy is pretty remarkable. The incumbency rate in the U.S. Congress is actually much higher. You know, Indians vote their people out all the time. There has not been a major contested election result in India, as there are now regularly in the U.S., so people in glass houses and all that. But I think most democracy experts looking at India would say, in the area of civil society, free speech, tolerance, it's sliding in the wrong direction. But what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, I have to say, as a longtime India watcher, I am slightly concerned about the drive toward the Hindutva agenda because I've looked at the early debates in the Constituent Assembly in India in the 1950s, right after partition, and there was really a, an appreciation for the fact that India was a multi-religious, multi-ethnic democracy, and part of what defines being a secular democracy is how well you protect your religious minorities. And so there was a lot of thought and effort given to how India would build that into the constitution, protection of religious minorities. And unfortunately, what we see with the drive towards Hinduizing India is that some of that respect for religious minorities and for protecting religious freedom is fading, frankly, So I think that is disappointing for me as somebody from the outside who had sort of had a a large fascination with the kind of democracy that India has always been. But unfortunately, some of that value for the religious freedom and respect for religious minorities is going away with this drive for Hinduka.
0: And it's not just India. This rise of ethnic nationalism and so forth is a problem in North America. It's a problem in Western Europe. But it is catching people's attention and it is a headwind for the relationship, I think, at this point. The last one I want to ask you about in the list of problems, maybe less of a problem than the other two, but that's India's diplomatic position in the world. In my view, it's good for the Quad, it's good for the US that India is connected to the global south. It gives the Quad a credibility that it wouldn't otherwise have, and frankly, a situational awareness that the US, Japan and Australia need from India. On the other hand, it probably annoys the heck out of American diplomats that India votes with Iran and the General Assembly more than us, that their trade with Russia continues. I mean, there's a lot of aspects of India's foreign policy that are, I don't know, maybe legacy. What do you think? Is this something India's transitioning out of or is just part of the package and we we have to get used to it?
1: So I think the Indian support for the global south and the idea of that India could act as a bridge between the developed and the developing world, I think that's all right. And I think that the support for India's leading role, at the G20, was a good thing. So I see that as maybe slight differences between us, but actually sometimes that can be an advantage and India can act as that bridge. Now, where I would say it's more problematic is India's continued support for Russia, even in the face of their invasion of Ukraine and the increase in the energy imports and the continued reliance on Russian defense supplies. I think that can end up being an obstacle, I think, for U.S.-India relations. And I think for India, I don't think Russia is going to be a reliable partner for India moving forward. As Russia gets more dependent on China, becomes more of the little brother to China, If there is another India-China border crisis, I don't think India would be able to count on Russia as much. I think Russia is going to look to China for the direction that it takes. So I do think that the relationship between India and Russia can have an impact on the U.S.-India relationship moving forward and the kind of technology and defense cooperation that we're going to have with India. I think India will say we can make firewalls, we can make sure that we protect any technology that the United States provides, but I think it's just going to be a fact that would have an impact on what the U.S. can do with Russia in the future when it comes to really advanced technology. And it does call into question the commitment to a rules-based order, India's support for Russia in the face of, you know, it clearly illegally and unjustifiably has invaded Ukraine. But again, it hasn't been a deal killer for the U.S.-India relationship. It certainly has not impeded quad cooperation. And I think that's a testament to just how strong the foundation is of the relationship between the U.S. and India and how important India is when it comes to the Indo-Pacific encountering China.
0: You have to go into the great game with the India you have, not the India you want. The bottom line still is the trend is continuous and bipartisan around convergence, even if it's sometimes incremental and frustrating. And as you were saying earlier, India's success is good for the US, good for Australia and Japan. It's good for regional and global stability, but it's complicated. So we're lucky that somebody found you and pulled you out of obscurity when you were a junior in University of Indiana, and lucky to, to have you unpack all this for us, Lisa. We'll keep watching what you do at CNAS, and thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure, Mike.
0: For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.